Now we turn to the Word of God, and Benjamin is going to read for us. Uh, This evening's uh, reading is taken from uh, Hebrews chapter 8, verses 6 to 13. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I have made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law into their minds and write on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. It's a great joy tonight to uh, welcome back the Reverend Professor Robert McCollum. He's going to talk to us tonight on the passage which you've heard from the letter from the Hebrews on the better covenant, and uh, we look forward to that. Uh, Professor McCollum is not only minister of the Reformed Presbyterian Church in Lisbon, he's a professor at the Reformed College in Belfast. And so we very much look forward to his talk tonight. We uh, do thank God for the work of the Christian Institute uh, in the province. Uh, we thank God for the work that goes on here uh, tirelessly by the staff and for the way in which they keep us informed as to what's happening in, in political circles. Sometimes we would be ignorant of what's go, uh, being suggested if it weren't for the Christian Institute. And so we thank God for that. Well, the subject tonight, uh, the better covenant. And Uh, As I thought about this and considered it, I realized that uh, I would have to set it in the context of the whole of Scripture uh, and then set it in the context of the whole of the book of Hebrews uh, before we narrow it down to take a a more detailed look at the new covenant itself. Uh, So if you bear with me, we'll we'll, we'll, uh, get to uh, Hebrews in due course. The better covenant... What do you understand by the word covenant? It occurs seven times in uh, Hebrews chapter 8. It occurs 286 times in the Old Testament and uh, 25 times in the New Testament. So it is an important biblical word and it's crucial, I believe, that we should understand its meaning. When you've been to a wedding... You will have heard the minister say to the happy couple after the wedding ceremony, as a sign of the covenant into which you have entered, 
these rings are given and received. The bridegroom and the bride have just exchanged vows and entered into a binding agreement, have entered into a covenant to live together in the holy state of marriage as long as they both live. The marriage covenant has been described as a bond of love. The two parties uh, to this marriage covenant have entered into the legal obligations of the covenant. And they've entered into those legal obligations not in a cold, detached manner, but in a warm and loving way, expressed in their deep affection for each other. Throughout redemptive history, God relates to his people in terms of covenant. That's why the word crops up so frequently in the Bible. And when God makes a covenant, he always takes the initiative. He is the sovereign Lord, the sovereign Lord who freely decides to enter into covenant. And we must remember that when God covenants with his people, it is never an agreement between equals, not like our bridegroom and our bride in the marriage covenant. David Mackay, in the book, The Bond of Love, and I would highly recommend it, in his book, The Bond of Love, he writes, God and man do not sit down together to hammer out the terms of their relationship, like management and trade union negotiators. No, God decrees the terms. It is for man to accept them humbly and willingly. In marriage, the covenant entered into is uh, like a, an exchange, is sealed by an exchange of rings. In the ancient Near East, uh, covenant treaties between nations were common. Uh, such a covenant treaty was a solemn promise of peace, confirmed by an oath and sealed, not by rings, but sealed by a blood sacrifice. And we have an illustration of this in the covenant ceremony described in Genesis 15. God sealing his covenant with Abraham. Uh, There was the the animal split in two. And God, and not Abraham, because he was anesthetized, as it were, and uh, the torch, and God walked through the bloody gauntlet uh, in the covenant-cutting ceremony. We haven't time to go into that tonight, but that's an illustration of God entering into covenant And, of course, uh, the person who broke the covenant, uh, uh, the curse of the covenant fell upon him. And, of course, the burning torch represented Christ, and the curse of the broken covenant fell upon him, and he died on the cross as a consequence. Turning now to Hebrews, and the writer speaks about a new covenant, the last verse, which makes the first one obsolete. And this new covenant is described as better. So how are we to interpret uh, this verse? Since the word testament is the Latin translation for covenant, some have concluded that the old covenant, the old testament, is obsolete, having been superseded by the new covenant, the new testament. 
Well, to demonstrate that that is not what Hebrews 8 is saying or implying, we must consider the text in the light of the wider context of Scripture and then in the nearer context of Hebrews. So first of all, we'll take a look at the wider context of the better covenant. The Scriptures teach that only one covenant exists between God and his people. This covenant is known as the covenant of redemption with reference to eternity and the covenant of grace with reference to time. So if we're thinking of eternity, it's the covenant of redemption. If we're thinking in terms of historical time, the covenant of grace, it's one covenant. Let's look briefly at the covenant of redemption. It was entered into by three persons. The three persons of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It was entered into by them when they covenanted from all eternity to save a people, the elect, from the fallen sons and daughters of Adam. And in that covenant, God the Father decrees the covenant. God the Son executes its terms through his work of redemption, and God the Holy Spirit applies the covenant in his work of regeneration and sanctification. Michael D. Williams has put it very succinctly. He writes, The triune God acts covenantly in history. The Father creates, the Son redeems, and the Holy Spirit recreates. And it's interesting in Christ's high priestly prayer to hear him speak of his faithfulness to his own covenant obligations, entered into with the Father before the world was, and then just prior to the crucifixion, the matter of ours, John 17, verse 4, he says to the Father, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. It is because of this covenant that Paul could write to the Ephesians and say with reference to the Father, He chose us in Him, that is in Christ, before the foundation of the world. So it's because of the covenant of redemption that a people could be chosen in Christ before the world existed. So this is the eternal dimension of the covenant Now we will take a look at the covenant when it entered history, now known as the covenant of grace. Louis Burkhoff gives a a useful definition of the covenant of grace. Uh, He writes, That gracious agreement between the offended God and the offending elect sinner, in which God promises salvation through faith in Christ, and the sinner accepts this, believingly, promising a life of faith and obedience. The covenant of grace. And in its essence, it can be summed up in these words. The words, the formula of the covenant. Leviticus 26 in verse 12, where God speaks and says, I will walk among you and be your God, and you will be my people. I will be your God, and you will be my people. 
This promise uh, speaks of relationship, the relationship that God enters into with his people. It is warm and loving, often described in terms of family relationship. It is twice repeated in Jeremiah, three times in Zechariah, as well as occurring in the passage that Benjamin read in Hebrews 8. And it will be, friends, it will be the relationship of heaven. Revelation makes this clear. Revelation 21 and 7. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. Or Revelation 21 and 3. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. A covenant relationship. It is because of this basic and fundamental covenant promise that the covenant of grace has been described as the unifying theme in the unfolding of God's redemptive purpose. Uh, so, so we're thinking of the Bible as a whole. What is its unifying theme? What holds Genesis uh, and Revelation together? What holds the, the law and the prophets and the Psalms and the Gospels and the Epistles, what holds it all together? The covenant, the covenant of grace. And because of that, uh, the covenant of grace, I assert, is the key to understanding the Bible. Though conceived in eternity and entered into between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, it entered history. It entered history in Genesis 3.15. In Genesis 3.15, we see God not announcing a panic measure to save something out of the unholy mess with which Adam and Eve had plunged the human race and the whole world. No, we see God, or rather, here announced his eternal plan to save a people for his own glory through the seed of the woman, through Christ, and what has been called the mother promise. In Genesis 3.15, God addresses Satan. I will put enmity between you and the woman. Uh, you see, a, a league of friendship had been established between Satan and the woman in their rebellion against God. So God says, I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. So that's why there's the ongoing persecution of the church, even in the world today, and between your offspring and her offspring, and he, we move to the singular, he, the seed of the woman, Christ, shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Christ suffered in the process of the cross. So this promise of redemption in Genesis 3.15 is the covenant of grace in the form of a tightly closed rosebud. Think of it as that, a tightly closed rosebud. In the rest of Scripture, in what we describe as progressive revelation, the rosebud is gradually opening, gradually unfolding. Nothing, that, uh, nothing essentially new is added. Everything was there, but it comes into full flower, in what we call the new covenant, or the better covenant, referred to in Hebrews. 
Bill Palmer Robinson, in his book, uh, The Christ of the Covenants, he concludes, the blessings associated with the new covenant therefore cannot be regarded as the development of a perspective previously unknown to God's people. Instead, this covenant, the new covenant, shall bring to fruition the redemptive intentions of God displayed throughout the ages. We want now for a few minutes to consider how God in the history of his people, revealed his will through covenants. And all of the covenants that I refer to are aspects or dimensions of the one covenant, the covenant of grace. And we look at three of them, uh, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and the Davidic covenant. First of all, the Abrahamic covenant. And we have... Uh, uh, the terms of it essentially set out in Genesis 12, 1-3. The Abrahamic covenant is sometimes called the covenant of promise. Abraham is called by God to leave behind the gods his ancestors worshipped and trust the Lord, put his confidence upon the Lord. The Lord who promised to Abraham three specific things. The Lord who promised to him offspring and land and blessing. And we want now to to trace these three things right through to the book of Revelation to show that, yes, there's this thread, this strand, this covenant running right through Scripture. God promised Abraham that his descendants would be as the dust of the earth that cannot be counted, or like the stars of heaven innumerable, or as the sand on the seashore. This promise was only fulfilled to a limited extent with reference to his biological descendants. Romans chapter 2 and verses 28 and 29 point to the fact that it is in a spiritual sense that we are to look for the fulfillment of this aspect of the Abrahamic promise. This is confirmed in Galatians 3.29, where we read, And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So that means that if you're a believer tonight, you're a child of Abraham, and you're the heir to the promises made to him. It's only when the Apostle John is given a vision of heaven that we see this aspect of the covenant promise made to Abraham ultimately fulfilled. Revelation 7, 9 and 10. After this I looked and beheld a great multitude that no one could count, like sand on the seashore, like stars in the heavens, like dust upon the ground, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb in heaven, ultimately fulfilled. The promise to Abraham of a seed or offspring ultimately points to one man, to the God-man, to Jesus Christ. In Galatians 3.16, Paul points out, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say unto offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. 
And so Christ is at the very heart and core of the Abrahamic promise. Promise of offspring, promise of land. The initial fulfillment of this relates to Canaan. Although it would be many generations before the conquest took place under Joshua. The question has sometimes been asked, why? Why was Canaan chosen? God's choice of Canaan as a land for Abraham was intentional and central to the redemptive mission for which Abraham was chosen. Palmer Robinson writes, as a narrow land bridge connecting the continents of Africa, Europe, and Asia, this place and no other was rightly situated for the extension of God's covenant blessing to the entire world. It's not surprising, therefore, that new covenant believers are commanded to be witnesses, yes, in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, but to the ends of the earth. And that part of real estate in the Middle East was to be the, the launching pad. And God, of course, had that in mind when he called Abraham to dwell there and to settle there. Abraham, of course, saw beyond that piece of real estate. By faith, he looked beyond Canaan to the fulfillment Hebrews 11.10 For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. This aspect of the covenant promise to Abraham will ultimately be fulfilled in the new heaven and the new earth, which Christ will usher in at his return, the paradise of God, for Christ will dwell with his people. So the Abrahamic covenant covenant of promise, respect to offspring, with respect to land, and then with respect to blessing. I will bless you. The great blessing that Abraham received was salvation. How did he come to enjoy that blessing? It was through faith. When the Apostle Paul is teaching in Romans that sinners are justified by faith alone, and not by the works of the law, he points to Abraham. He points to Abraham as as the perfect illustration. And he quotes from Genesis 15 and verse 6 in Romans 4 and 3. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And this therefore made Paul write about Abraham that he is the father of all who believe both Jew and Gentile. And so he is the father of us all. By faith, Abraham saw that his salvation did not arise from an animal slain on an altar, but from the seed of the woman. We know this because in our Lord's debate with the Jews, he said to them at one point, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it. And was glad. And of course, every believer in both the Old and New Testament eras, and until Christ comes, will experience the blessing given to Abraham, the man of faith, the blessing of salvation. When writing to the Galatians, Paul makes reference to the death of Christ and its purpose. 
Galatians 3, 13 and 14. He writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on the tree, so that, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So tonight you're rejoicing as a Gentile in the salvation that you enjoy in Jesus Christ. Abraham was before you. He rejoiced in that salvation, and you're now experiencing the blessing that Abraham enjoyed. The Abrahamic covenant, the covenant of promise. Then we we move to the Mosaic covenant, the covenant of law. In the time of Moses, God's covenant was not with one individual, but now with a nation, with Israel. The Ten Commandments, written by the finger of God upon tablets of stone, are described in covenantal terms by God. And I find this very interesting. Exodus 34, verse 28, And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Or as we read in Deuteronomy 4.13, And he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, that is, What is the covenant? The Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. Or again, Deuteronomy 9 and 11. And at the end of 40 days and 40 nights, the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant. The law was never intended to function as a principle of salvation by works. It was given to God's redeemed people to reveal to them how a covenant people should live in fellowship with their covenant God. How they should live in response to God's salvation. How they should live in response to God's gracious deliverance. How they should live for His glory. Remember the preface to the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This is what I've done. This is my work of grace. This is my work of redemption. Then what follows? You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make unto you a carved image. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy the ten words of the covenant. Not saved by keeping the law, but saved to keep it at the very heart of the covenant. Covenant grace always precedes covenant obedience. The Ten Commandments were not set aside in the new covenant fulfillment. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount shows that the commandments were not merely to be observed in an outward and physical way as the rabbis had taught, but also in an inward and spiritual manner. As the words of the covenant, they remain in force in the new covenant era. There was, however, more to the Mosaic covenant than the Decalogue. God also revealed to Moses on Sinai his design for Israel's worship. 
which would be known as the ceremonial law. Ceremonies are worship acts that are signs of who God is, the holy sovereign Lord. They are worship acts showing who we are, sinners. And they are worship acts showing how God receives sinners into his presence. And then they are also worship acts which show how God sustains his people as his own. In Exodus chapters 25 to 27, God gave Moses very specific instructions for the construction of the tabernacle and its furniture. For example, Exodus 25 and verse 9, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. Clark Copeland comments, all details for making the tent and its furniture were very pacific, for God alone directs his worship. Along with the physical structure, detailed instructions were given about the priests who were to serve at the altar, the garments that they were to wear, who was to officiate in the offerings and tabernacle services, etc., Practically everything about the tabernacle had significance. From the altar opposite the entrance gate, for God could only be approached by way of sacrifice, to the bronze laver for washing, those who approached the Holy One must be washed, cleansed from all their impurities. Then within the tabernacle was the holy place, with the golden candlestick, the table of showbread and the altar of incense. Beyond the holy place was the most holy place, or holy of holies, in which sat the Ark of the Covenant, symbolizing God's presence. The most holy place was separated from the holy place in the tabernacle by the veil, the curtain. Nothing but the finest materials were to be used in the construction of the tabernacle and its furniture. Materials such as acacia wood, pure gold, silver, bronze, and fine linen. There were ram skins and goat skins, ropes and cords, as well as aromatic oils and precious stones. And what an array of colors the worshipper would have beheld as he, as he approached the tabernacle. Blues and purples and scarlets, whites and golds. In the days of Solomon, the tabernacle was replaced by the temple, which, although was the same basic pattern, was even more magnificent. This temple was destroyed in 586 BC by Nebuchadnezzar and his army. It was rebuilt after the exile in the days of Zerubbabel at the instigation of the prophets Haggai and Zechariah and completed in 516 BC. That temple was superseded by Herod's temple, the main structure of it being completed about 9 BC. This is the temple referred to in the New Testament. Jesus, he spoke about destroying this temple, which astonished his disciples and scandalized his enemies. The charge was made at his trial. We heard him say, 
I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. When Jesus died, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This was to symbolize that this aspect of the Mosaic Covenant, the ceremonial, the temple era was now over, along with all its rites and rituals, along with all its feasts and sacrifices. In that sense, Christ destroyed the temple and in his resurrection built a new one, a new way of approach to the Father, not through an earthly priest, but through himself, the new mediator of the covenant, the one mediator between God and man, the mediator of the new covenant. A reference also to the spiritual temple which would now be built, referring to the people of God, of whom Paul spoke when he wrote to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 3.17, you are the temple of God. So with respect to the Mosaic covenant, the covenant of law, there is both continuity and discontinuity as we enter the new covenant age of fulfillment. The moral law, as summarized in the Ten Commandments, continues, showing God's people how they ought to live in a manner that glorifies Him. But the ceremonial discontinues, having been fulfilled in Christ. Having considered the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant, we look now briefly at the Davidic covenant, <clears throat> or the covenant of the kingdom. The essence of the Davidic covenant is that David's dynasty would last forever. 2 Samuel chapter 7. And for 400 years, the line of David continued. It continued in the southern kingdom to the exile through 20 kings who were all direct descendants from David. After the return from the exile, the Davidic line was still alive, although the crown was no longer functioning. The covenant pointed to fulfillment in David's greater son, of whom the angel Gabriel spoke to Mary. Luke 1, 31 and 32. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, the Davidic covenant. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. So in Christ, the Davidic covenant finds fulfillment. Jesus Christ is now seated upon that throne, King of kings and Lord of lords. As he pointed out to his disciples prior to his ascension, all authority... All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. David's greater son, King Jesus, is seated upon his holy throne. 
He is king of the nations. All the nations of the world, whether they recognize him or not. And he must reign. And he will continue to reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And because he reigns, we who are in him will be more than conquerors. And if God be for us, who can be against us? The covenant of grace entered history in Genesis 3.15. It was then, as I said, like a tightly closed rosebud, whose full majestic glory was yet to be revealed. Progressively, in the various covenants, God revealed various aspects of his eternal covenant as that rosebud gradually opened, revealing in the Abrahamic covenant the covenant of promise, revealing in the Mosaic covenant the covenant of law, revealing in the Davidic covenant the covenant of kingdom. But the rosebud had not yet fully opened. That occurred with the coming of Christ. That occurred through his life, death, resurrection, ascension, and glorification. The coming of Christ, and it's very important to add, the subsequent outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost marked the inauguration of the new or better covenant referred to in Hebrews chapter 7, 8, and 9. In Christ and through Christ, the covenant of grace has opened out in full flower. Its glory, its magnificent, its scent is altogether splendid. Christ, we might say, is the new covenant. The old covenant in all its aspects, Abrahamic, Mosaic, Davidic, was all pointing forward to him. Christ, friends, Christ is the fulfillment of them all. Christ is the seed of Abraham, the one through whom all families of the earth shall be blessed. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. In Christ, all the types and the shadows of the Old Testament ceremonial in the tabernacle and also in the temple were fulfilled. The altar and the sacrifices, the priests, the laver, the lampstand, the showbread, the incense, the veil, the ark, the mercy seat, they were the shadow. Christ is the reality. Christ is the son of David who has entered into his kingdom, a kingdom of eternal duration. That's the the wider context of the better covenant of Hebrews chapter 8. Now for a few minutes, we will think about the nearer context, the situation with reference to the Hebrews. So secondly, the nearer context of the better covenant. This letter to the Hebrews was written to Jewish converts to Christianity. When Paul arrived in Jerusalem at the end of the third missionary journey, he was told by the elders of the church 
Acts 21 and 20. You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. So there were thousands in that first century Christian church from a Jewish background. It is abundantly clear that the Hebrews who received this letter were contemplating turning back. Yes, contemplating turning back to the shadows of the Mosaic administration. Turning back to the temple, turning back to the priests, turning back to the sacrifices, turning back to the ceremonial and the ritual. Something that had been so familiar to their ancestors and something which they had all grown up with. This conclusion is arrived at by reflecting on the many warnings that are to be found in the letter. And I've identified one or two for you. Hebrews 2 and verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Or Hebrews 2 and verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? If we turn away from Christ back to the shadows. Hebrews 3 verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there should be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Hebrews 3.14 For we share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Or Hebrews 10.35 and 36 Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. I think it's legitimate to ask the question, why were these Jewish Christians drawn back to what they had left behind? Why were these professing Christians drawn back to the rites and the rituals, the shadows of the old covenant? Well, at least two things I believe are obvious from the text in Hebrews. The first one is persecution. The writer points out to them in Hebrews 12 and verse 4, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So it's encouraging them to persevere, to keep going. And he says, it hasn't got that bad. You haven't yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. The Apostle Paul was a Jewish convert to Christianity, and he was particularly vilified by the Jews. And these Jewish converts were obviously being targeted as well. If they quietly returned to the temple and engaged in all the aspects of the sacrificial system, then the threats against them would be lifted. So there was the pressure coming from persecution. But then there was also, I believe, nostalgia. There was nostalgia for the smells and bells with which they had grown up. Think for a moment of the contrast between what they had left behind And what was now their present experience? In temple worship, they had the high priest dressed up in all his colorful robes. 
There was the fragrant smell of the incense which burned continually in the temple. There were the continual sacrifices being sacrificed on the altar. Never mind the magnificence of the temple and its precincts. Left behind were all the Jewish festivals which had been observed by their ancestors for hundreds of years. The feast of the Passover, the feast of weeks, the day of atonement, the feast of tabernacles. Contrast this. Picture this with the sheer simplicity of worship in the house of Philemon or on the house of Nympha or on the house of Priscilla and Aquila. Unadorned New Testament worship with Christ the focus. Worshipping the Lord in spirit and in truth. Now offering up not an animal sacrifice upon an altar, but the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. We can understand, I believe, the temptation. The writer of Hebrews, I believe, entered into their thinking to counteract that temptation. And he keeps pointing them to Christ. Over and over again, he urges them to consider him, consider Christ. In chapter 1 of, of Hebrews, he points out the excellencies of Christ, the one who is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He demonstrates by seven references from the Old Testament that Christ is the one in whom they find fulfillment. Phil Arthur comments, if they chose to reject the message of the New Testament, they could not pass this off as a return to the religion of their childhood and their ancestors. Reject what the New Testament says about Christ and you reject the message of the Old Testament along with it. And it is clear from the succeeding chapters in Hebrews that it was to the Mosaic Covenant and the ceremonial aspect of this covenant, that these Jewish converts were yearning to return. So Paul is at pains to show them, to point out to them, for example, in chapter 3, the superiority of Jesus to Moses. Hebrews 3, 5, and 6. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And then bearing in mind the context, we can understand the challenge of his application. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. We are his house, along with Christ. Then in Hebrews chapter 4, from verse 14, the writer demonstrates to his readers the superiority of Christ to Aaron. For example, verse 14, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. Our high priest is not Aaron or one of his descendants in the Levitical order, but our high priest is Christ who has passed through the heavens. Jesus Christ, he argues, is a high priest of an entirely different order. Like Melchizedek, 
having neither beginning of days nor end of life. And then he adds in Hebrews 7, verse 11, Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? Writing about the priests associated with the Mosaic administration of the covenant, Hebrews 7, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, that is Christ, holds this priesthood permanently because he continues forever. And it is in this context that the writer affirms this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. So the writer, in seeking to persuade his readers not to drift back into the Mosaic administration of the covenant, emphasizes the superiority of Christ and his priesthood and his sacrifice. Christ lives forever to intercede. The high priest died. Christ is holy. The high priests were sinners. Christ is in heaven serving at God's right hand. The high priests were serving a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. With respect to the holy place, the high priest only entered once a year and only after the sprinkling of blood, the blood of bulls and goats that could never take away sins. But when Christ had offered up for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, signifying that his work was finished, that it was complete. For by a single offering, he had perfected for all time those who are sanctified. So by this means, the writer presses home by argument after argument to his readers the absolute superiority of Christ to all that had been foreshadowed in the Mosaic administration. Don't, he says, don't, he exhorts them, drift back to the shadows. Don't be satisfied with copies when in Christ you have the reality. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The wider context of the better covenant, the nearer context of the better covenant. And now, uh, quite briefly, before we come to the conclusion, the new with reference to the better covenant. What about the use of this word new in the quotation from Jeremiah, which the writer picks up on in the last verse of Hebrews 8, verse 13. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Is this a covenant that is absolutely new, absolutely unique, completely different from anything that has preceded it? Well, I think the answer from all that I have said so far in this lecture is an emphatic no. No, since in Christ we find the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Since in Christ we find the fulfillment of the Mosaic covenant. And since in Christ we find the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. The writer to the Hebrews is clearly pointing out that Christ fulfilled all the types and shadows of the Mosaic. 
In that sense, we can say that they are all, the Abrahamic, the Mosaic, the Davidic, they're all aspects. They're all an integral part of the new covenant. How then are we to understand new? Michael Williams, I believe, provides the explanation. He writes, new in the new covenant means new in quality rather than new in time or origin. New in quality rather than new in time or origin. But the use of new in this sense can be illustrated in the use of new in uh, Isaiah 65, verse 17, and in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 13, and in Revelation 21 and verse 1, with reference to the new heavens and a new earth. There will not be the creation of a replacement heaven and earth. Rather, there will be such a cleansing and purging of the present creation that will make it like new. At the fall, in the words of John Milton, we had paradise lost. But when Christ returns, we will have paradise regained. Again, to quote from Michael Williams, the world to come will be a startlingly new world. For the Adamic curse of sin and death will be forever put away. But it will also be the very same creation that God called into being in Genesis 1 and verse 1. We could say the same about the new with reference to the new birth in John chapter 3. The person born again is so radically changed as to merit the description of having been given a new birth. But with respect to his physical body, with respect to his personality, still the same person, but made anew in Christ and given the title, a new person in Christ. Ezekiel 36 speaks about the new heart. In regeneration, our hearts are so radically transformed as to merit the description new. And so with the new covenant. The old administration of the covenant is so radically, so radically fulfilled in Christ as to be called new. Michael Williams writes, The new covenant is not, after all, categorically new. The difference is redemptive historical. That is to say, it is not a difference between two categorically different religions or two different sorts of covenant relationship between God and humankind. It is rather a single unfolding covenant story that moves towards greater levels of fulfillment of divine promise. The rosebud, to go back to our illustration, of Genesis 3.15, is in Christ in full bloom, displaying its beauty and its glory in the gospel, in the message of the new covenant that we are called to proclaim. In that sense, it is a better covenant. In conclusion, I will now emphasize the various benefits of the new covenant as described in Hebrews 8, verses 10 to 12. Remember, this is the covenant ushered in by the life, 
death and resurrection of Christ and the outpouring of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. There is, and I have four short points, a new relationship with the law. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. Verse 10 of chapter 8. Matthew Henry comments, The law shall be written in their hearts by the finger of the Spirit, as formerly it was written on the tablets of stone. The Lord by the Spirit works in his people a disposition towards obedience. Now it has to be said that such a concept was not unknown under the Old Covenant. Deuteronomy 6 and verse 6, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Psalm 119, verse 44. The psalmist says, testifies, I will keep your law continually forever and ever. What about his emotional relationship to the law? Psalm 119, verse 47. For I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. Or Psalm 119, verse 127. Therefore I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. The psalmist, however, may have been the exception rather than the norm. Prior to Pentecost, the members of God's covenant community tended to have a rather cold, servile, detached attitude to God's commands. Something that we find illustrated over and over again in Israel's history. But now, with the coming of the Spirit, an age of fulfillment, the better covenant in Christ, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. A new relationship with the law. Then a new relationship with God. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Verse 10. This is the old covenant relationship repeated over and over again in the old covenant in the Old Testament. However, with the covenant fulfillment in Christ in the age of the new covenant, this relationship takes on a dimension hitherto not known or experienced. The concept of adoption, for example, into the family of God is now more fully realized and now more fully understood in the age of fulfillment. What a blessing it is for us tonight to be known as the sons and daughters of the God of heaven. A new relationship with the law, a new relationship with God. Thirdly, a new knowledge of God. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. In the age of the old covenant, everything tended to be dark and shadowy. The ceremonial and the ritual were never clearly understood. The priests seldom have ever preached. Therefore, knowledge was limited. Whereas in the age of the new covenant fulfillment, the Spirit has been fully given, the Scriptures have been fully revealed, and the preaching of the Word is being carried out by a multitude of preachers, all of whom are commissioned to make Christ known in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. 
a new relationship with the law, a new relationship with God, a new knowledge of God. And then fourthly, a new appreciation of forgiveness. The Old Testament believer had to look through the dim, shadowy rites and rituals of the Old Covenant ceremonial to a coming Messiah who would offer up a sacrifice to appease the wrath of God for their sins, the one through whom forgiveness could be found. For some in the Old Covenant age, this forgiveness was an experience, however, quite fully understood and and deeply cherished as we can again see from the Psalms, Psalm 32 and verse 5. I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Psalm 103 and verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Psalm 130 verse 4. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Yes, don't doubt it, forgiveness was experienced under the Old Covenant. But now in the age of the Spirit, with Christ's redemption accomplished and applied, the believer had a much richer experience of forgiveness, something that far surpasses anything enjoyed by his Old Testament counterpart. Now to sum up. The better covenant, the new covenant, is not, after all, categorically new. There is a difference, and it is essentially this. The old is the administration of the covenant prior to Christ's coming. The new is the administration of the same covenant after Christ's coming in the age of the Spirit. Christ is the new covenant, and in him, And in him alone are to be found all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Tonight we are new covenant believers. But to fully understand and appreciate the new covenant, the better covenant, we need to understand where it has come from. This new covenant was conceived in eternity before the world was, when the triune God covenanted to save a people For God's own glory, the covenant of redemption. This covenant entered time in the Garden of Eden in the mother promise of Genesis 3.15. It was progressively revealed through the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and the Davidic covenant. And of course, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms developed and explained these covenants. The covenant was fully revealed in Christ. The Old Testament, of course, was continually pointing to him, our Passover lamb, the lamb of God who bears away the sin of the world. All Old Covenant believers were looking through the shadows to Christ. All New Covenant believers enjoy the noonday sun, the noonday sun of God's complete and final revelation in Christ. And we see Christ in all his glory, and in all his brilliance. It is in this Christ, the Christ of the covenant, that we must all put our trust. And then and only then will we experience the covenantal relationship of heaven. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. 
and God himself will be with them as their God. Thank you very much for that. There is a time for questions. Um, I wonder whether you'd like to comment on the covenant of uh, works uh, made between God and Adam prior to the fall. Well, that's a further illustration of, of God dealing with the human race covenantally. And uh, we, that was Adam in the age of innocence, if we can describe it as such. Uh, and so it was on condition of perfect obedience that he would uh, enjoy continued existence in the Garden of Eden in paradise. So, so it, it's, uh, uh, there, there was grace in that, in that it was God's provision for his created being. But, but it was on a different level after that man was deserving punishment and the covenant of grace deals with fallen man covenant of works deals with unfallen man and so uh, with, with a heart that was untainted and unstained by sin uh, he had uh, the ability to walk in God's ways and to keep God's commands and fulfill uh, the requirements that God laid upon him in other words the test of not eating the tree of the knowledge of good and evil but it's, it's, it's a further illustration of God dealing covenantally uh, with, 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 with people. And so we should always bear that in mind. I wanted to ask, uh, as a follow-on to that, how is the new covenant now better than what Adam enjoyed? And when we're in heaven, would it be possible for us to fall in the way that Adam fell? So is, our, is, our, is what we enjoy now better than anything that's ever gone before? It will be better. We're not yet in heaven. But, but in the paradise uh, regained, in the new heavens and the new earth, in Christ, our experience of, of bliss, of blessing, of enjoyment, will be much, much richer than Adam would have enjoyed had he not fallen in the garden. Um, a related question, if I can uh, bring it up, is that uh, some people ask, why did God ordain the fall? And it's difficult to answer that question. One aspect of the answer is that God is more glorified uh, by saints, by fallen sinners redeemed in Christ than he would have been by people continuing in an unfallen state. Maybe not a perfect answer, but it's one I think that helps me to understand why God permitted the fall. And, and the chief end of man is to glorify God. The chief end of, of the, the creation of the world, the chief end of everything is God's glory and the glorification of God. That's something we, better, we always have to bear in mind. With whom did God the Father make the covenant of grace? Was it with, with man or with Christ as our um, representative? I essentially believe that God the Father covenanted with, with God the Son and with God the Holy Spirit. And so he covenanted with Christ as our representative. Uh, because uh, we, uh, we, we are totally inadequate in and of ourselves. So Christ is our elder brother. He's, he's there for us in the covenant. Uh, in Genesis 15, I believe it is, is a picture of Christ going through the bloody gauntlet on behalf of Abraham. Abraham goes into a deep sleep 
And so that, in a sense, is Christ. Uh, and and the, the covenant was broken. Christ had to bear the brunt of that. And so he suffered and died on our behalf as our representative, as our substitute. And so, yes, with, with Christ on our behalf. I just wonder if you would comment on the covenant made with Noah as well. A lot of people put that outside of the covenant of grace, but, well, I'll let you answer the question. <laughs> Another illustration of God dealing covenantally with his people uh, I, had, I had it in the talk, so I, I took it out because I think it, it's God's gracious dealings with his grace, but it's with the whole human race. And so we would, we would consider it, I think, under the title of common grace in, in that uh, God uh, sends the, uh, the sun on the just and the unjust as he does the rain. And so no matter how wicked the world will ever be, God will never destroy it again with the flood. And, and that is grace. The seed time and harvest, uh, that, that's the whole human race enjoys that and will continue to enjoy that. God's common grace, his compassion to the whole world. So in a sense, it's, it's, it's outside of the context of this rosebud uh, to, 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 to a certain degree, but it's all part of God's gracious dealings with his people. Is the end of the covenant made with Noah, though, not to allow the fruition of the rosebud analogy? So he initiates common grace for the very purpose that man is sinful, and unless he does that, the covenant of grace will never come to fruition because wicked man will over, you know, throw and the world will be destroyed. So the end of the covenant made with Noah is for the covenant of grace. Yes, yes. Yes, I think I could agree with that. Mm -hmm. My, my mind's blowing, and I, I just want to thank you for the, uh, the emphasis you laid on Jesus and the role of Jesus, um, because um, that seems to me that it is so often forgotten, that 75%, 80% of lectures or sermons can be around kind of doctrine or one thing or another but the central issue of Jesus is sometimes very often neglected uh, so I want to thank you for the emphasis on that because it's, it's great to hear that and uh, it's, it's so rare in a lot of ways the thought passed my mind when you were <clears throat> talking about the Hebrew, the Hebrew church and the right of the Hebrews Paul or whoever it was um, how he tried, what he was trying to do to um, encourage them to stay within the faith. Um, and you mentioned that he was talking about Jesus. And now it's crossing my mind that one of the great worries that I have is that uh, the young people today, whether they're baptized, evangelical, whatever you like to call them, the, you'll know the American studies, that there are millions probably of a generation of people who are leaving the church. And I wonder whether your analysis about um, how the right of the Hebrews was trying to encourage those people to stay, that there is an analogy here that might be applied. Yes, I, I think you have a very valid point. Uh, two weeks ago, I recognized that I was 35 years after I had entered the Christian ministry. And uh, over that time, I look back and I see that 
I ought to have preached Christ more. Uh, and, and so this, this framework that I've worked out, uh, I think should give all of us the fact that Christ is central to all the scriptures. And so whether we're in the Abrahamic covenant and all that, or the Mosaic or the Davidic, it's Christ, it's Christ. And so no matter where we're in the scriptures, it's Christ. And so to these Hebrews that were in danger of drifting away, it was Christ. Look at that first chapter. Uh, consider him. Paul talks about in Colossians, him we proclaim. They were in danger of, of heresy and uh, the Colossian heresy. And so chapter one is all of Christ. And then he goes on towards him we proclaim. We're to be rooted and established in him. And so Christ is, 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 the, is, is the, the, the rosebud in full flower. And if young people could see him, they would, they would be drawn to him and they would love him for who he is in all his magnificence and glory. So if we want to see our churches full again, it's Christ we must preach in all the scriptures. Uh, so yeah, we're in the Old Testament, we're in Genesis, Exodus. No matter where we are, we, are, we should be preaching Christ in an exegetical way because he arises out of all the scriptures in a natural way if we can see him, if we can understand him. When Colin asked his question about the... Uh was that, would the future be better than it was for Adam? Is it um, reasonable to think laterally uh, to what the verse in dealing with Christ? Uh, it talks of Christ being made the author of our salvation, who was made perfect through suffering. And you're just uh, saying, you know, you wish you'd preach Christ more. And in, in a sense, um, Christ is better because of the fall than he was before, the book of Hebrews suggests. Is that uh, correct? Well, I wouldn't like to say that. <laughs> I think we have to interpret that in the context of, of, of his mediatorial work. I'm asking uh, the question to be educated. Yes, I know, not, I know, I know. So he was being prepared and equipped for his mediatorial work, and he was being made perfect for that mediatorial work but we can never say because from all eternity he was with God and holy God of holy God, but he, he became man. He never sinned. He was faultless, but he was being equipped and prepared throughout his, his life for the climax and culmination of his work, which was his death on the cross. And so it's not better. Again, it's, it's, it, we've, you could use the analogy of the better covenant it's not, it's not that the old covenant was, it was incomplete. It was, it was imperfect because the, the full realization hadn't come. But every aspect of that covenant was perfect in and of itself. Nature's not changed, but what he said there in John 17, verse 4, he's actually done the job. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly. What I'm, I think that's what I'm yes, trying to say. Yes, so, yes. so that's so why. He was equipped and prepared for doing the job. And it, it was all through everything that he experienced in his humanity. Because if he hadn't uh, experienced the temptations, if he hadn't experienced the trials, he wouldn't have been able to identify with us in all our weakness. And he took all that to the cross on our behalf and suffered and died in our place. Can I say thank you indeed to Professor McCollum for his very clear and full lecture tonight and bringing that sense of Christ to us.